If you have your notes uh, there in the bulletin, you can get that out. We're going to start. I'm going to read a verse in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Hanging out in Samuel the past couple of weeks, but we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. And I'm going to, how many people have ever heard of the name Mephibosheth out of the Bible? Yes, a handful of people. If you've not, it's a really, he's a really interesting guy, really interesting character. I want to talk to him specifically. I want to talk about Mephibosheth, call this message a place at the table. And if you're having children anytime soon, Mephibosheth is probably a great name to maybe, maybe think about going with. Uh, I mean, I've been talking to my wife about it. And so, you know, pray that we get pregnant and maybe it'll work out. We'll have a son named Mephibosheth. I think it'll be great. Second uh, Samuel chapter 4, uh, verse 4. It says, Jonathan, now Jonathan, he was Saul's son, and Saul at that time was the king of Israel, and Jonathan had a son who was lame in his feet. It says he was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and the news was that his grandfather Saul the king and his father Jonathan had been killed. And it says, and his nurse took him up and fled, and it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And God, I, I just thank you for each person that's here this morning because, Lord, I know that you have a word for them, that you love them so much, God, that, that you want to speak to them this morning. And, God, we thank you that that just by your choice, God, you have you, you've said that by the foolishness of preaching, God, you've chosen to save some. And we know that that salvation is deeper than just going to heaven, God. It's transformation in the here and now. And so I pray that your word would go forth in power and in demonstration of the Spirit and that it would take root in our hearts and that we would be changed this morning by it. And we ask those things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I got a little reverb on my mic up there, so I, I'm not singing any solos if y'all want to. Maybe take a little bit of that off. I'd appreciate it. But uh, so we're going to go ahead and get started here. Now, listen, Mephibosheth, like I said, he was the son of Jonathan, and Jonathan was the son of the first king of Israel, Saul. And Israel had just come out of the time of the judges. God had never actually designed Israel to be a nation that would be up under a king because God himself was supposed to be their king. But yet they rejected God's ways and they said, give us a king. And God gave them their desire. And Saul became king. But yet when he became king, he disobeyed the Lord. And so God stripped the kingdom from him. We talked a little bit about that last week because David would become the second king of Israel. But there was some time that, 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 that took place between those two things. But in the middle of all this story of all this mess, there's a story about this young man named Mephibosheth that I believe speaks to our hearts in a profound way if we will allow it to. Now here's what we have to understand is that there's news that comes in in this story. All of a sudden, you, here's what you got to imagine. You have to picture this. Picture young five-year-old Mephibosheth, right? He is a prince of Israel. He's going to be king of Israel one day if everything goes well. And he's in the palace, and he's playing in the palace, and everything is going very well, right? He's just doing what he wants to do, well taken care of. Everybody's protecting him. He's the prince, and all of a sudden, news comes in to the palace, and when it comes in, they, the word comes that your grandfather Saul and your father Jonathan have been killed in battle. 
And all of a sudden in, in the palace, pandemonium absolutely just breaks loose. Everybody loses their minds. His nurse runs out into the courtyard, picks up young Mephibosheth, and immediately starts to take off running because she knows that somebody will come to kill him too. Because the way that things worked then was that if the king died, they were going to kill everybody in his lineage, everybody in the palace, and everybody in his home because they needed to exterminate any right to the throne. It's just how it worked. This was empire. This is the way the world works now to a large degree, that we're going to absolutely decimate anybody else that is in power so that they have no, no chance uh, uh, of doing this. So the nurse picks him up to flee, and she's running so fast, taking off, that she falls. And when she falls, young five-year-old Mephibosheth falls, and both of his legs are broken, and he becomes crippled. Now imagine, now Mephibosheth, he goes out, He's, he, he, he's, he's five years old, right? And, and at this time, he goes out and they're, they're, they're hiding him somewhere because they know, they just know that David is the king now and, and David, he's going to come in and he's going to kill everybody here. And Mephibosheth, the king, the new king David, he's out to get you. And this would have been, uh, been strange for Mephibosheth because he knew David. Everybody knew David. David was iconic. He was like the most famous guy in Israel at the time. They probably had posters up of David, you know. They actually sang songs about David. They sang songs that said, Saul is slain his thousands and David is slain his ten thousands. And because of that, Saul hated David. He was jealous of him because David had become such an iconic figure. But here's the other thing, is that Mephibosheth knew David very well because David was his father, Jonathan's best friend in the world. It was almost that kind of friendship that was a little, that was a little bit weird. You ever known two buddies that had such a good friendship it was almost a little bit weird? And, but listen, they, they broke every bro code law that there is in the history of time as far as friendship goes. And we'll get into that. But let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a, in a situation like Mephibosheth where everything is good, you feel like you have your future planned out, everything is going well, and in a moment of time, everything turns upside down? Sickness could come in. Death could come in. Betrayal could come in. Something terrible happens in a moment of time and everything you thought might happen in the future all of a sudden is flipped on its head and your life is forever changed. In a moment of time, he goes from being a healthy young boy who will one day be king to a crippled young boy who is now an outcast and hiding for fear that he's going to be put to death. In a moment of time like that, can you imagine that? Being in that position. And, and many of us have been in that position. And listen, years go by and Mephibosheth is not healed. He's not restored to the kingdom. He doesn't come back. And it seems like one of the saddest stories you would ever hear in your life. But something begins to change. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is probably 15 to 20 years later. So Mephibosheth is about 20 years old at this time, maybe 25. He's grown up, he's a young man, but he's still a cripple, he's still in this situation. And in chapter 9, some 15 to 20 years after this happened, David has come in, he's driven out all of his enemies, he has set up his kingdom, he has become king, and all of a sudden, David says this. Out of nowhere, he says, it says, Now King David said, in verse 1, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now see, that's a weird statement. Why would a king who knows that there's somebody who could claim his throne out there say, I want to show him 
kindness for Jonathan's sake. And the reason he said this is because he and Jonathan, his best friend, had made a covenant some 20 years back. And all of a sudden, there's something about a covenant in the Bible. See, we make promises, and sometimes when we do things, we make promises, we make vows, but we don't always keep our vows or our promises. But listen, God is a covenant-keeping God. And even when we fail to keep our vows and we fail to keep our promises, God will never revoke His vows or His covenant or His promises. And there comes a time in every person's life where he remembers, I remember my covenant that I made with them through Jesus Christ. I have plans to do them good, to show them my kindness, to bring about prosperity, to bring about new life in them, to allow it to pass from their generation to the next generation so that they can carry out my name in the earth. God remembers His covenant. See, sometimes we forget it and sometimes we think that maybe God has forgotten it, but He has never forgotten His covenant. And here's the thing. David, again, we talked about this last week, but David becomes a picture of Christ. He becomes a picture of the love of God. Now, see, David and Jonathan were best friends, and the Bible says that they were intertwined, right? It says in 1 Samuel 18, it says that his soul, Jonathan's soul, was knit to the soul of David, and he loved him as his own soul. He gave him his robe. He gave him his armor. He gave him his sword. He gave him everything. Now, you have to understand this, because Jonathan was the very next in line to be king. He was the son of Saul, the king. But when Jonathan saw David, he recognized on David the anointing of God. He recognized on David that this is the Lord's chosen and I will not resist what God is doing in other people's lives. Sometimes we want to fight our way over top of other people, but Jonathan was different. And Jonathan is a picture, if David is a picture of of Christ, then Jonathan is a picture of the true church. Because Jonathan even ends up saying, and David ends up saying about Jonathan, he says this, Jonathan's love for me is greater than the love of all my wives. Now, now, now see, in our culture, we hear that and we say, well, that's just weird, right? But the truth is what he's trying to say is, I've had some wives, right? Now, David wasn't perfect, but he was saying, I've never had anybody, one of my wives that I know would be willing to lay down their life for me. I know that this man has laid down everything. He has had the kingdom in his own hands and he's taken his robe off and says, I'm not living for myself or for my kingdom. I see what God is doing and I place my robe on you. I give you my sword. I give you my shield. I give you my place. And see, this is a picture of the true church because when the true church sees Jesus Christ in all of his glory, you know what you're willing to do? You're willing to take off your own armor. You're willing to take off your own robe and say, this life is not my life anymore. How much ever I could advance in my own kingdom, building my own kingdom, pursuing my own career, my own desires, I lay it down now because I see that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And I live not to serve myself, but I live from here on out to serve you and you alone because I recognize that you are the chosen one, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are my King, you are my Savior, and there is nothing else that I would rather be used for than to serve you all the days of my life. See, Jonathan, his soul was knit to him. This is a picture of Christ and the church. And see, it it would not be a good thing for Jonathan if if the royal lineage changed. He knew that it could be devastating. So he said, look, I'm laying down my life for you. But when you become king, he said, I want you to make me a covenant that you will show kindness to my house forever that you will reveal your kindness to my house forever. Now, let me, let me give you this. The first point in your notes, I just got three points for you, really simple. 
And, and, but, and, and these are so simple, but the truth is, it's so simple that oftentimes as Christians, we miss it. And the first thing is, is that God's desire is to show us His kindness. See, it becomes very cliche to say to people, well, God loves you. But do you know that God, he's, he, he doesn't only love you, He's fascinated with you. He wants to be kind to you. He wants to reveal that to you. Now, this is amazing because in chapter 1, verse 3, he says, is there still, or chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, he says, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. And then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God. See, the kindness of God here is actually the Hebrew word for covenant faithfulness. It's the word that we would translate grace. And he's saying, I'm trying to demonstrate God's covenant faithfulness to somebody uh, of Jonathan's household and of his lineage. Now, I love what it says. This is over and over again, even throughout the New Testament. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7, it says, For we ourselves, we were also once foolish, disobedient, and deceived. Anybody say amen to that? See, it's not, it's not like, well, there was some, most of us were good because we were raised in church and all this stuff. You know, you can be in church and still be foolish, disobedient, and deceived. There's a lot of people in our community that are. We get so bound by religion that we don't even know what a real relationship with God looks like. We don't even understand what it means to truly worship God. So many people are so blinded by religion that they live outside of a relationship with God where they truly know His love and kindness on a daily basis. You can go to church all the time and have that. See, we ourselves were all once foolish, disobedient, and deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Y'all agree with that? Is it okay if I just lump us all into that pile this morning? Okay, because we were all living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, foolish, disobedient and deceived. But the next verse says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. See, God was always wanting to reveal His kindness and His love through Jesus Christ to humanity. He wasn't saying, I'm waiting on you to get it right before I can bless you. He was saying, I know you're messed up. I know you're foolish and disobedient and deceived. But if I can reveal my kindness to you, it will so get into the depths of your heart that you will want to lay down everything to live for me. See, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And in America, since the late 1800s, we believe that it has been the wrath of God that leads people to repentance. Listen, there is a wrath of God, but a lot of times that's not necessarily what God, how God wants to lead people to repentance. When Jesus came, he demonstrated this is what leads people to repentance, and it is the love and the grace and the mercy of God. Wrath can help. You get scared to death sometimes. I mean, I was scared to death of going to hell when I was about, you know, 18 years old, and that kind of prodded me a little bit. You know, I was like, think I want to go look it seems hot based on what people talk about you know what I'm saying I, I'm not interested and so that helped me move on a little bit see the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom but let me say, let me tell you here's what it doesn't say it does not say the fear of the Lord is mature wisdom it says it's the beginning fear can start your relationship with God but it can never sustain it that's good. I'd write that down if I was taking notes. Fear can start your relationship with God, but it can never sustain it. 
Fear can prod me into a relationship with God, and that is the beginning of wisdom. It's like a child because a child will go over and put his finger in an electric socket, and it is the fear of a father when he comes and threatens to beat him to death that will keep his finger from, from going back into the electric socket. And that fear keeps him safe and keeps him healthy, and that is the beginning of wisdom. But mature wisdom is when all of a sudden he turns to his father and he realizes that his father did that because he loves him so much. And when he grows in that relationship with his father, all of a sudden he realizes, man, my father loves me so much, I don't want to do anything but honor him all the days of my life. I would never stick my finger back into an electric socket. (laughs) See, there's something that changed in the human See, mature wisdom is the love and the kindness of God, the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. He says, well, when the love and the kindness of God toward man appeared through Jesus Christ our Savior. He says, listen to this, not by works of righteousness which we have done. See, that's messed up because so many people believe I have to do a lot of stuff first. I have to go to church. I have to be at at all these small groups. I have to be at there. Listen, we want you to be at all those things, but that's not the most important thing in your life. The most important thing in your life is that you realize that God loves you apart from any of those things. Then you start wanting to be involved in the body of Christ and in church and among His people because you realize how much God loves you and you want to pour that love out on others. That's where it begins. That way it's real. That's why why I'm not coming to church out of obligation. I'm not being a part of the family because I feel... That's religion. It's legalism. It's bondage. But when I want to be here because I know how much God loves me and I know how much He loves you and I know that when we meet together we can encounter that, something changes. All of a sudden I desire to be here. It's not a burden anymore. And see, that's what God is saying. He's saying... I want to do that in their lives. Not by works of righteousness, which they have done, but by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He pours out on us abundantly in Christ Jesus. See, there's another verse about kindness. In Ephesians, essentially, in chapter 2, it says the same exact thing. He says, look, we were all dead in sins and trespasses, and God made us alive. And we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We walked according to the lust of our flesh and the desires of our mind. And he says, but when the mercy of God showed up and his great love, and it says, he raised us up by grace and seated us in heavenly places in Christ. And then in verse 7 it says this. This is an awesome verse. Can you put verse 7 up there, Ephesians 2, 7? It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This word exceeding riches is in the Greek. It's pretty neat. It's hooperbalo. Anybody say that, hooperbalo? Y'all like learning Greek? Most people make fun of me whenever I teach it, but I don't care because I think it's cool. This is the word we get hyperbole from, and that means an extreme exaggeration. It means you're exaggerating on purpose. But see, he's not exaggerating on purpose. What he's trying to say, because the word also means whatever you think the limit is, you throw it far beyond the wall of that limit. He's saying just when you think God's kindness and his mercy and his grace runs out and you think there can't be any more past that, he says throw it far beyond that. It's deeper than that. And it says he's going to expend all the ages to come. Multiple billion years revealing to us His kindness in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's pretty amazing to me. And here's the thing. You don't have to wait to get to heaven for this to begin. He wants to begin doing this in your life now. He wants to begin to reveal His kindness to you now. Now, see, David asks Ziba, 
Saul's servant, if there's anybody that he can show this kindness of God to, this kind of kindness. This is what he's talking about. And Ziba, you know, he's Saul's servant, and he says, yeah, there, there's one left. His name's Mephibosheth, but he's a cripple, you know. And he just kind of slides Mephibosheth up under the seat because, and, and he's not, he's like, I don't know if you want to really deal with that guy. Because in society in that time, now, today it's different. We know that God can use anybody when people are handicapped, if they have learning disabilities, whatever they have, God loves them, and God is actually able to redeem them and use them even more effectively than he can use somebody who's in perfect health. Because God is just amazing like that. He takes weaknesses, He takes brokenness, and He, and he reveals His glory and His power in that. But Mephib- listen, then they didn't have wheelchair ramps. They didn't have wheelchairs. Somebody had to pack Him around on their back. He was a burden to society. So Zeba's like, no, nah, you know, David, there's a dude in Mephibosheth, but he's, he's crippled. You know, why would He even mention that? And He's pointing out that, he, that He's crippled, and then all of a sudden... He's the least likely, and in verse 4 and 5 it says, So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Those are some cool places. And then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. See, now, it's intentional about saying where he's from. Think about Mephibosheth for a minute. Mephibosheth was broken by the fall. Sound familiar? We were broken by the fall that happened in the garden. We were messed up. And it says that he was in, he, he was in make here, which means sold or given over to death. That's where he's at. He's in a place where he's sold or given over to death, just like we were. And he's of the son of Amiel, which Amiel is one of the family of God. And it says he's in this place called Lodabar. And Lodabar means without a word or without pasture, a place of no bread, a desolate place. Now see, David was in, or Mephibosheth was in this place just like us, that he was sold or given over to death. And here's what I want to tell you about every single one of us, is that we were sold and given over to death. And every single day of our lives... We, we, we were born to live eternally in God's presence, but the sin in our lives has bound us to this death, and this death is at work in us now. Listen, there's something in every single one of us, even when the, when the seasons shift, sometimes we just start to get depressed. You know you were never born to experience that kind of depression? It, it, it's the death that is working in us that Jesus came to redeem us from. He wants to set us free from that. But he says, we're in that place. But the truth is, is that we're one of the family of God. But the problem is, is that we're in a place called Lodabar where there's no word, there's no pasture. Now, let me tell you something. There are so many people, there are people right now in this place this morning. You are one of the family of God, but currently, actively in your life, you're living in a place called Lodabar. You got no word from God. You got no pasture. You feel the death coming over you every morning, every night. You're depressed, you're anxious, you're fearful, you're worried, you're living in a pile of shame and hurt and disgrace and you're broken and you're wondering if God is even out there and some of you even believe and you're convinced that God isn't wanting to be kind to you at all, that God wants to punish you for your past mistakes. This is the lie of the devil. This is a place called Lodabar. And let me tell you something. Listen, church, we can never allow... You know, let me tell you something about pastoring. None of us can pastor every single person that's in a church. But that's why we have brothers and sisters, because we have to watch out for the ones that God has given us and connected us to to make sure they never get into that place where they're not hearing from God. 
where they don't have a word, where death is beginning to, uh, to, to come over their soul. We have to be aware of that so that they don't exist in that place anymore. Now, here's what's so interesting is he's in this place where there is no word. You ever been there? You ever been like, man, I just don't hear from God. I don't know how you talk about hearing from God all the time, Clay, because I don't ever hear from him, right? You ever been there? Sometimes it feels that way. That's what that place is. And see, here's something else that's very interesting is Mephibosheth actually wasn't even his name. They changed his name in 1 Chronicles 8. He has, he's actually born and given another name, and his name is Maribel. Maribel, right? That name means an opponent against Baal, which was a false god. What it meant was, listen, son, you're going to grow up and you're going to be in opposition to every other false god. You're going to tear down idols and you're going to lift the name of the one true God. You know how important your prophetic voice is over the next generation? Let me say something right quick about this. Because right now, I hear people all the time talking about how the next generation is, you know, they, they, all they do is play video games and the next generation, they don't know how to cook, they don't know how to clean. And let me tell you something, a lot of this is true. The next generation is pretty messed up to some degree. But this is why it is so important that we don't speak Mephibosheth over their lives, that we speak a prophetic word and a prophetic declaration that says, yes, this generation looks like it's very dark, but I'm saying that God is going to reveal His kindness and His love and His mercy in a generation, that He's going to pour out His Spirit on some folks, and He's going to raise up some young men and women that will press through the darkness, and they will lay hold of the gifts and the callings that are upon their life, and they will tear down false idols, and they will lift the name of the one true God in these last days and that is the truth some are going to break through and do that but the problem is is we live like everybody else well he's crippled now we can't call him Maribel because he's never going to tear down any idols again he's never going to do anything so they change his name to Mephibosheth you know what that means it means from the mouth of shame or a shameful thing can you imagine your nurse picking you up and taking you and your name is Maribel and then, and then after you're five years old they change your name and they say, well, now your name's Mephibosheth because you're a shameful thing and you need to stay hidden. You need to stay hidden because the king's out to get you. He'll kill you if you put your head out here. You need to stay hidden and make sure that the king never sees you because the king is out to get you. And let me tell you something. There are so many people in our generation, part of the reason our generation is so buried under darkness is because they believe that's the picture of God. They've heard a voice from even preachers and churches and even Christians that you're a shameful thing. You'll never amount to nothing. You're worthless. Your parents were this way. You're this way. And that's just how it's going to be. You're a shameful thing. And it's from the mouth of a shameful thing. Now, let me tell you something. There are so many people that are born with a prophetic destiny. They're born with so much purpose and what God has called them to do. And you know what happens? When they're young, pain comes. Abuse comes. Could be they were sexually abused. Could be they were just verbally abused. Could be their parents are divorced when they're young. Could be their home is broken up. Could be they lost a brother or a sister. Could be a lot of different things. But all of a sudden, pain, abuse comes in. And when that comes in, it leaves such a wound that people carry around shame and rejection and abandonment for the rest of their life. And it covers them up. I can't tell you how many people I sat down and counsel with throughout the week and the one thing that binds them up more than anything is shame. They cannot move forward with God because they're ashamed of what's happened in their past. And a lot of times it's not even so much what they've done as what people have done to them. And shame binds them. And I promise you, I te I'm telling you, shame is a demon spirit. 
And it looks to so infect the minds and the hearts of our generation that they feel so worthless, of so little value, that they can never move forward with God. And I'm telling you, it works. There's so many people in here right now that you live up under that shame, and sometimes you, you, you're really good at kind of masking it and just moving on anyway. And the truth is you've got to get to the root of that thing and realize who you are in God. Some of, some of the, the, the ladies that I get to counsel, that's what I tell them. I say, what is holding you back from the promise of God? The number one thing that they name is shame, guilt. See, guilt is that I'm sorry for what I've done. I feel bad about what I've done. And guilt can actually be a good thing. But shame is different because it, it goes to another degree. It's not just about what I've done. It's about who I am now. What I've done becomes who I am, and I just, I just am that. It's who I am, and I feel terrible about myself. I feel worthless, I feel ugly, I feel unclean, and I begin to say all these things about myself. And the greatest temptation as Christians that we live in is that we begin to develop our identity from what the world and what the, and what the people in our lives speak over us rather than what God is speaking over us. And I cannot afford in my life to let you define me or let this world define me. Because if I allow you to define me or this world to define me, I won't even know who I am. I'll live up under a false identity. I'll live in shame. I'll never feel worthy enough to stand up here and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved my wretched soul. I'll never be able to do it because I'll never feel up to it. But see, Jesus, he spoke to me one time and he said, Son, what I did for you on the cross, how can you neglect and disrespect what I've done for you on the cross? Because when I went to that cross, I was perfect, I was flawless, but I took every sin that you ever committed from fornication all the way down to your unclean thoughts and I bore it in my body on the cross and I took it in my body. Why are you still carrying it with you? You should not be carrying any more guilt or any more shame. And let me tell you something. We are convinced in religious circles that God is pleased when we come in with this woe is me attitude. Like, I'm terrible, God. I'm unworthy, God. That is not what God is pleased with. God is pleased when you come in here and worship and you say, God, I realize I'm not perfect. But my God, through, through the cross, you have made me clean. You have taken my guilt. You have taken my shame. You've given me a destiny and a purpose. And you've called me and you've, you've said that I'm a new creation. You've said that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. You've said that your plans are good for me. You've said that you've anointed me with the power of the Holy Spirit and the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit that lives in me. You said you've given me the mind of Christ. You said you've not given me a spirit of fear. I won't be anxious or worried because, because there is power and there's love and there's a sound mind that is operating in me. See, i got a new identity in Christ. I'm not... I'm not named Mephibosheth. I'm stinking Maribel. Amen? Sometimes you got to get a little bit angry at it in a healthy Christian way, right? What I'm trying to say is, is that there are forces in this world that are trying to push you back into a corner and rename you and cause you to live up under your past failures, your past mistakes, so that you're never able to move into the calling and the purpose that God has on your life. See, Mephibosheth had been in Lodabar for years when Ziba comes and knocks on his door. He lost his legs, he lost his family, his name was changed. And everyone is telling him that the king is out to get you. The king is mad at you. By this time, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to 
Think about this. Do you think Mephibosheth was excited when Ziba knocked on the door? No. He thought the king was out to get him, and he thought to himself, he's finally found me. And I bet he was angry. I bet he was bitter. I bet he thought, like most people thought, the reason I'm here, broken, crippled, hiding out for fear, is because of the king. It's the king that did this to me. You know how many people live in that same position? They live in a place where they believe the reason bad things are happening to them is because it's God's will. Listen, this is the, one of the most devastating doctrines of our generation is that evil is God's will. Everything that happens is God's will. This is one of the most devastating lies that we could ever believe. There are so many things that happen in our lives that are not God's will at all. The will of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. He did not come to break. He did not come to condemn. He came to heal and to restore. So there are things in our fallen and broken world that are broken and need healing and restored, but that's what Jesus came to do and not the other way around. Amen? Can you say amen to that? A lot of people struggle with that in our generation, but I'm telling you, you have to stand for that with a fervency because people are beginning to fall up under this deception that God, well, it just happened and it's bad, but, but it's just what God wants because uh, whatever. But see, all of these years, here's what he comes to, and here's the second thing. See, the second thing is God invites the broken to eat at his table continually. He invites the broken to eat at his table continually. Now, I want you to read this. Verses 6 through 8, it says, Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? I want you to pause there because there's a question mark. He asks him the question. He, essentially, he looks at Mephibosheth, and, he, and, and he's down on, his, on the ground, and David says to him, shameful thing. He's questioning him. It's the same way that God did with, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He comes to them, and he says to them, who told you this about yourself? Who told you you were to be ashamed? Who told you you were supposed to hide? Who told you you were a shameful thing? You're one of my most prized possessions you mean everything to me. And he looks at him and he questions him and he says, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your grandfather and you shall eat bread at my table continually. And then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Now this is, this is, this is, the line, I believe, that defines our generation. He does not even hear what the king is saying. The king says, I'm going to restore to you everything that you've lost. Everything that's been lost, everything that was your grandfather's, I'm restoring. God is a God of absolute restoration. Do you believe that? And I'm telling you right now, whatever you've lost in your life, God's desire is to restore that into your life. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring restoration. But he says these things and he says, and you're going to eat at my table continually. But you know what? He doesn't even hear it. Why? Because shame blocks out you from being able to hear the goodness of God. Sometimes you can come in here on a Sunday morning and all the bad difficulties, all the sins that you're dealing with, all the struggles that you're dealing with, somebody can give a good word from God and you can't even hear it. Because you say, no, I'm a dead dog. And who am I that you're going to give me this? It's not about you deserving it. You can't ever earn it. God gives it as a free gift to you. And here's what he says. He says, he, he, shall be, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's 
sons. And the king in verse 9 called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. Now he gives him about 36 servants. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded to his servant, so your servant will do. He says he's going to eat at my table like one of the king's sons. See, here's the thing. Many of you, you know that you're a child of of the king. Many of you, intellectually, you can say to yourself, yeah, I'm a child of God, I'm a son of God. But the problem is, is that you don't eat at the table like a child of God. The problem is, Jesus Christ has spread this banquet for us of grace and healing and deliverance and freedom from sin and abundant life and joy and love, and he says, I want you to come and I'm inviting you to eat at my table continually. How come you won't sit down at my table and eat? How come you think you're not worthy to be in my presence? How come you think that? Because look, I don't care what you've done. I know, I know what I did. And I know that Jesus kept saying to me, son, I know you're struggling. I know you're dealing with difficult times. I know you're an, an, an addict. I know that you're dealing with all of these different sins in your life. But I'm not asking you to fix that before you come to my table. I'm asking you to come to my table right now and begin to eat. See, and this is such a big, different thing in our religious society because we say, well, you know, you can't go to church until you got things together because you don't want to be a hypocrite. Anybody ever say that? You know what I'm talking about? What our message is this, though, is that Jesus will save you as you are and you keep coming to his table and over time you get so full of his goodness because you won't stop eating that your life will change. But if you don't start eating at his table, it's never going to change. And he's saying, I want you to come and eat right now, even though you're crippled, even though you're in sin, even though you're in shame, even though you're struggling, even though you're fearful, even though you failed a hundred times and you feel like you've let me down, will you come and eat at my table? Because that's where I want you. There is a place at my table for you. And I hear something else that I want to say is that y'all, some of us, we have family members. And man, they have done outlandish things. And just like this is the name of my message, there's a place at the table for them. And our message should be to them, our message should not be, you need to do this, you need to get this right, you need to get this right. No, our message should be to them, you need to come to the table and eat. You need to taste of God's goodness. You need to get in the family of God. You're not going to get everything together right away, but if you will keep coming to the table and you will sit down at the table and you will just eat of the love of God, before long things are going to start to change. This is what happened in my life. I gave my life to Jesus and I didn't even go to church because I was afraid of coming to the table. But I set my own table up in a private place with God and God started spreading out His goodness in front of me. And I started eating at the table and all of a sudden, my life started to be transformed. I started to be filled with the good things that He put at His table and I was continually eating until I started to overflow with who God was. He broke the sin out of my life. He set me free from so many things that I'd been struggling with and dealing with. And see, that's our message to people. We're not asking you to be perfect before you come to church. We're not asking you to come to church and then get perfect within the next week. You ain't going to do it. What we're asking you to do is come to the table and know that you've got a place at the table. You're a child of God. 
You didn't earn that place. Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross. But if you will keep coming and eating at the table, you'll experience restoration and healing and life and deliverance and freedom until you'll say, I never want to leave this table again. I want to sit at this table always. Continually I want to sit at this table like the child of God that I am. See, this is awesome. We, we love underdog stories, don't we? Some we, we watch them shows, you know, where these people from nowhere come in and they sing and they become the best singer in all the world and all this stuff. And, and we sit and cry watching these shows and stuff. Because it's an underdog story. We love to see somebody who nobody expected just go far and make it. You know why? Because that's what the gospel is. We were all broken and messed up and had no potential for anything. And God says, I want that one. And he brings us and sets us in high places with him. And he begins to restore us. And, and see, this is the last thing, my last point. I'm going to finish up. The last point is that we are Mephibosheth. You are Mephibosheth. I am Mephibosheth. See, in these stories, just like we said, we read the Old Testament, we like to think we're David. You know, David is Jesus. We're Mephibosheth. Amen. You know, in religious circles, though, you get to the point where you start to believe it the opposite way. We say, we're the church, we're David, and we're inviting the Mephibosheths to come to our table. That's not the reality. We are the Mephibosheths just like the drug addict is out here this morning. And we have to identify with them. We are all broken. Yes, they may have different problems than we have, and those may be more debilitating as far as we look in our current culture and situation. It's very debilitating. But every single one of us, number one, we're all fallen and broken. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I'll be honest with you, even now, even after 10 years being a Christian and God doing amazing and miraculous things in my life, there are some times when I sit down in the evening and I look deep within my heart and there are things in there that I don't like and I feel broken and I feel unclean and I feel dirty and I feel shameful all of a sudden and then I think to myself, how can I ever stand up Sunday and share a message with them, God? Because still deep down on the inside of me, I'm just a broken little boy and I'm fearful and I'm worried and I don't know what's going to happen next. And then all of a sudden, the love of God, the kindness of God comes over me and he begins to say, you won't stand on your own accord, but you'll stand because I will be the one that packs you in there. I know you're a cripple, son. I know you can't walk, but I'm going to be the one that carries you. I died to be able to carry you. You're all broken. And it's good when we realize that we're fallen and broken, but we've got a Savior. If we could do this on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus. The second thing is, that we're not just left there in that place of brokenness. We're pursued by the king. I hear people all the time, they say, well, you know, God will meet you halfway. No, God will chase you down when you're turned and going the opposite direction. God will pursue you to the farthest degree. He will outstretch his arm and grab you and begin to pull you back. You wouldn't even desire God if the Spirit of God wasn't after you. And when that starts to work in a person's heart, that's what I want to tell them. They say, well, you know, I'm not perfect yet. I'm still struggling with this. I'm still struggling with that. And I, it seems so hard that I just don't know if I can do it. What I'm saying to you is the only reason you even think it's hard is because God has pulled you. And what feels so hard is that you're still kind of going in the opposite direction. But God loves you so much that he's pulling you anyway. And here before long, you're just going to say, okay, I yield to your kindness, God. I yield to your goodness, God. See, he chases us down. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. God comes looking for us. And the third thing is this. This is how we're Mephibosheth. See, Mephibosheth, he didn't go out to look for the king. He didn't say, maybe I can go to David. 
Maybe I, I know David. Maybe if I go to him, he'll restore to me. No, he didn't do any of that. The king sent for him. And right now in your life, the king is sending for you. He sent the servant Zeba, the Holy Spirit, to knock on your door and say, why are you standing outside? Why are you calling yourself a child of God and not coming and eating at my table? Why are you not just allowing yourself to be saturated in my goodness and in my love? Because when we eat at the king's table, here's the third thing. The king's table covers our sins. He comes in as a cripple and he sets up. See, they would have seen his lame legs. He would have had crutches or something. And, you know, he gets, he gets in there and he sits down at the table. And at the table, nobody sees his, his broken legs. Nobody sees that he's lame. Because here's what happens in Christ. In Christ, you put your faith in Jesus, God places you in Christ and Christ in you. And then he says this. He says, and, and your weakness, in your weakness, my strength is perfected. And I cover all your sins. Better I take your sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. And I take that which has been broken and messed up. Listen, that which the enemy meant for evil, God is able to turn for good. The stuff you messed up in the past, God will get his glory out of it. And just because he didn't cause it didn't mean it, he didn't know it wasn't going to happen. He knew and he planned. If they will hear my voice at this moment in their life, I will take that mess and I will turn it and, and I will get the glory in their life lives in that situation and I will cover them they can sit at my table and there'll be a new creation when we sit at the table of God together we're all setting the same all setting the same race makes no difference age makes no difference gender makes no difference we're sitting at the same table as children of God see in the in the last verse verse 13 it says so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem for he ate continually at the king's table and he was lame in both his feet. You know, y'all can come to the music. You know, this is, this is going to be the story of when we finally see Jesus face to face. These old cripples are going to finally sit down at the feet of Jesus. And we're going to sit down at his table. And we're going to begin to eat. And we will eat continually. But listen, that begins now. You can, you can insert your name into that. I like to do that. I, Clay, who was broken, lame, and ashamed, now eat continually at the king's table at, as his own child. But see, it doesn't end there because now God wants us to do what he's done for us to others. Just listen to me for just a minute longer. See, God dispenses his love and his goodness and his power and everything he is with a shovel. I mean, he just dumps it out as much as he can, maybe even with a backhoe. He just wants to dump it out as much as he possibly can. But let me ask you this. How come it is that if God dispenses with a sh shovel, a lot of times we only dispense with a teaspoon? We receive this abundance of God's love and this abundance of God's goodness and all of these things that God has for us, but yet somehow we're only dispensing on a very small level. And here's what I want to say is that we begin to pour out God's love and kindness on others when we for ourselves receive and know this is how much God really loves me. You have to be in a place where you receive that for yourself and you begin to understand how much God loves you because God doesn't just love you, He's passionate about you. The Bible says that He is, you are His workmanship, you're His poem, you're His fabric. He thinks about you, His thoughts about you are more than the sand on the seashore and He has plans for you and thoughts about you 
And he's constantly thinking about what he wants to do next that's going to be good in your life. I promise you that. This morning, it's not a question of whether or not God wants to do something new and good in your life. It's a question of whether or not you'll receive his invitation to come to his table and eat. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me just for a moment?